able to gather um, once again. Um, in case you don't know me, my name's Nick. I'm one of the elders here at Village, um, albeit uh, myself and my family are part of Village East. So um, if you're thinking that you've never seen me before, you, you maybe haven't. But um, it, it's such a blessing to come here, actually. And I think every time I've, I've preached here, it's maybe been half a dozen times in the past year or so, um, I continually see faces that I don't know. And, and that's, that's such an encouragement, such a, um, a tangible um, image of, of just God um, building his church and, and growing it in numbers. So um, hopefully we'll, we'll get to know each other a little more um, over time. So as, as we've seen from our reading this morning, uh, we, we have two parables here. We have two for the price of one, um, and there's quite a bit to work through there. So um, we're, we're going to just get, get started straight away. Um, over the past number of weeks, as we've continued in this series of parables, um, it's been titled Kingdom Culture, because each of the parables that we've looked at uh, has, has taught us something about the kingdom of God. We've seen in each of the previous parables either something of the very nature of God's kingdom or some of the marks of a life in that kingdom. But as we look at Matthew 25 here this morning, we see Jesus speaking of the consummation of the kingdom, the completion of the kingdom, and and the final stages of of his kingdom timeline, if you will. And it's no surprise then that that we see this um, sort of almost right at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're deep into Matthew's gospel here, um, and and these teachings of Jesus took place only a few days before he would be arrested and put on trial. And what Jesus is doing here is preparing his followers for life in the last days. Preparing his disciples for what was then an unforeseen time that would fall between his first and his second comings. He's already been explaining that this time could be long, And he's already been telling his disciples that it will include suffering and trial for his people. But even in that, we'll see here, he says that his people are to be ready for him. And these parables, I think, as we'll see, they they fall into that category of biblical accounts, which are are familiar to us, uh, but a little uncomfortable. Um, They'll they'll feature what we see are are surely some of the most chilling words found in Scripture. But as we often see through God's words, that the uncomfortable stuff, the, the stuff that does make us squirm a little bit is often the most important um, and is often the, the parts of scripture that we need to pay most attention to. Any of you that, that have a toddler at home or who have, have parented a toddler um, will know that they have an amazing ability for selective hearing. Um, our three-year-old Grace um, is becoming a bit of a pro in this and, and as such we find ourselves having to issue the same instruction repeatedly um, on a number of occasions throughout the day. So we'll find ourselves having to repeat the instruction, Grace, don't hurt your baby sister, don't squeeze your baby sister, don't sit on top of your baby sister. And as we repeat those instructions, it's like she doesn't hear them. Um, and, and we have to keep repeating and, and eventually intervene. Um, but if in that moment we, we issued a, a different instruction that, that featured in, in any part of it the word McDonald's, Instantly, we would have our attention. Instantaneously, we would have our attention. Um, and so she, she's able to choose what she hears or, or at least choose what she responds to. So, so let's not um, exercise selective hearing this morning. Um, let, let's be open to what, what God is, uh, is telling us through this passage. Let's, let's welcome any discomfort. Um, let's, let's not internalize or suppress it, but um, maybe our prayer that we, we respond to, to any of that and to our Lord in, in obedience and in submission and in worship. Let's look at these two further teachings um, of Jesus found in this chapter. 
And we're not going to approach these as we normally would with, with sort of a verse-by-verse -verse exposition. Um, we simply wouldn't have time to do so. But also, as, as Lucas in East um, and Andrew here in South has probably touched on over the past few weeks, the, the parables, um, they, they often require a, a more unique approach to interpretation um, to make sure that their, their cultural specificity, those, those sort of cultural specifics found in, in the imagery of the parables, um, so that they don't obscure us from seeing the kind of overall singular uh, point that Jesus is making in each parable. So we're going to take each of these parables in turn, look at what Jesus continues to teach us about his kingdom and how this relates to our lives here and now. So just before we look at those individually, uh, I want us just to note two things. Firstly, these parables, unlike many others, they don't feature among their protagonists or among the characters portrayed, those who are outside of the church. Jesus wasn't teaching to an audience that contained both his followers and his opponents at this point. Both of these parables were preached to Jesus' disciples exclusively, or at least those who professed to be, as we see here that Judas was still part of the group at this point. So the message of this whole chapter, in fact, is, is for the church um, as we read it today, and for all of those who at our stage of history and of, at our stage of God's sort of kingdom timeline, um, all who profess to be followers of him. And secondly then, in relation to the content of the parables themselves, in each parable here, the character representing Jesus, so that's the bridegroom in the parable of the ten virgins, and the master in the parable of the talents, they're both absent. So the king is absent from his kingdom, if you will. He is away, but sure to return in the future. We have two parables presenting an important teaching to the church with the focus very much on the fact that, that the bridegroom and the master are both absent, but with the sure promise of returning. And, and both of these characters represent Christ and his absence, at least physically speaking, from his kingdom presently at the time in which we live. But as is the case in the parables, we too, like the, like the ten virgins and like the, the, serv the servants, we live in faith that is the assurance of things hoped for that Christ will one day return for his bride and to his kingdom. And so we'll see here, Jesus is teaching his followers both then and now how in the hope of his return we are to wait for his return. How we, in the hope of his return, are to wait for his return. How we are to live here and now in light of his sure and impending return. So let's take each of the two parables and look, look just briefly at, at what's going on in each of them. Firstly, we're going to see in the parable of the ten virgins that we are to keep watch for Christ's return. In this parable, Jesus uses the, the, the illustration of a traditional Jewish wedding ceremony. And in doing so, this would have been imagery that was really familiar to his audience at the time, albeit a little less familiar to us. But as part of that traditional Jewish wedding ceremony, the bride and the wedding party would wait for the bridegroom to appear. And when they would hear that his approach was near, they would go out and meet him, and together they would return to the house for the wedding and the wedding feast. The ten virgins that we see here in the parable would have been ten unmarried girls serving as bridesmaids in this wedding party. But as we'll see as the story progresses here, that there's a contrast between five wise and five foolish bridesmaids. All ten of them had the same job to do. 
They had lamps to light the way for the bridegroom, lamps that were supposed to be ready and lit when he arrived. But in verse 5, we see one crucial detail. The bridegroom was delayed. The wait was longer than the bridesmaids had first expected. Verse 5 continues that they all became drowsy and slept. This continues in verse 6. At midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. The bridesmaids have fallen asleep, and now the bridegroom is coming. The situation that the bridesmaids were to be prepared for has happened. This was the time for them to do their job. They were to light their lamps and lead in the bridegroom. I wonder if you're familiar with the, the meme that we so often see on our social media feeds, which usually shows someone uh, famously or spectacularly messing something up, um, and it always has the caption, you had one job. Well, this was the bridesmaid's one job, and yet we see that the five foolish virgins were unprepared. They had to ask the five others for some oil to light their lamps, and having rightfully declined, the five wise direct the foolish bridesmaids to the local market dealers. And while they were away doing this, we read in verses 10 to 11, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. We see here that the five foolish bridesmaids were otherwise engaged when the bridegroom arrived. And as a result, they found themselves excluded from the very thing that they were there for in the first place. But to understand where they had gone wrong, we need to look at Jesus' rebuke and his instruction at the very end of the parable in verse 13. Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And so the implication here is that the five foolish bridesmaids had not been watching for his return. But to understand this and to understand the, the watching that this parable calls us to, we can't think of watching as simply standing idle, gawking up to the heavens and waiting for Christ's return. But rather we need to look at a fuller meaning of watch as in to be watchful or to keep watch or to be cautious over or prepared for the return of our King. The five foolish virgins had taken their lamps, but they had not taken the oil with them. They knew the bridegroom was coming, but they acted as though he was not. And I think this tells us that one of two things was the case. Either they hadn't taken seriously what they were called to do, that is their calling to provide light, or they hadn't taken seriously the bridegroom's promise to return. But either way, they were unprepared. They hadn't kept watch. They weren't ready. And it is the oil in their lamps, or rather the lack thereof, which demonstrates this lack of preparedness. The oil in the lamp was part of the means by which they were to get their job done. They didn't have oil for their lamps. They were neglecting the only means by which their lamps could serve their purpose. And I think this unpreparedness we can see comes from a sort of lack of any real meaningful commitment on the part of the five foolish bridesmaids in the first place. You see, the fact that they were present in their role as bridesmaids at this wedding ceremony and, and in their holding of a lamp each, something which we can assume they had chosen to do or had, had accepted to do, there is an outward expression or outward evidence of their commitment to being at this wedding party. But when it came to oil, the very means required for them to fulfill their duty, 
the symbol of preparedness which required a certain level of commitment to obtain in advance, they were found to be lacking. So the oil was the symbol of preparedness or the means by which they were prepared. But we see in Scripture that oil is often used to represent the Holy Spirit. We see reference to this in Hebrews 1.9 and in 1 John chapter 2. So we can see here that oil Jesus is using to depict the inward and spiritual reality of a living faith. And bearing this in mind, it then seems clear that the lamps are representing the evidence or the, the outward evidence of a profession of faith in Christ. So we must ask ourselves, what are our lamps? What, what is the outward evidence of our commitment to Christ? Is it our church attendance? Is it the company that we keep? Is it the language that we use? Is it the things that we share and post about on social media? And, and are these things, are these practices or behaviors examples of our own strivings and efforts to create a certain appearance? Or are they the unavoidable overflow of the effectual work of the Holy Spirit as he dwells within us, molding us and shaping us and sanctifying us into an increasingly greater likeness of Christ? Because if it's not that, then we too must question our preparedness. Because in our fallen and sinful state, our own efforts and strivings will never be enough. So we must always keep watch and be watchful of the presence of oil in our own lives. I have an old friend, uh, someone that I've known since, from, since school days, from childhood. Um, and he comes from a family of Christian parents and he grew up attending church regularly. But he would always say, I'll sort that God stuff later. Or I'll, I'll do that when I'm older. And, and this was the foolishness of the five virgins, the five foolish virgins. They thought that the power for their light could be borrowed at the last minute, at the 11th hour. And while it's easy for us as Christians to quite rightly say, what a dangerous way to live. Even as professing Christians, that delay that we see in the bridegroom's return in verse 5, this sort of timeline between Christ's two comings seems to be too long for us to, to adequately spirit, prioritize our spiritual life. See, the drowsiness that fell on the ten bridesmaids, that fell on all ten of them, represents the circumstances of our lives while we wait for his return. This drowsiness is the weight of our earthly responsibilities, our earthly desires, trials, and temptations. So perhaps the five foolish bridesmaids lack patience. Perhaps their wait was too long and too arduous. And so is our life and our wait for Christ's return too difficult for us to wholeheartedly follow him? Perhaps it's exposure to pain, hurt, sickness that have dulled our affections for Jesus and our zeal for following him. Or perhaps it's exposure to the things of this world that capture our affections. Maybe it's that, that higher paying job, that bigger house, that new car, that relationship that we know God tells us we don't need in his kingdom. But are there times, even, even what we dismiss as small things where we say, I know I don't need that, but for now I'd like it, so I'm going to prioritize my pursuit of it because, hey, Jesus will be waiting when I've got it. The foolish bridesmaids knew the bridegroom was coming, but acted as though he was not. May we not be found to be doing this in the church today. May we not find ourselves relying on having Christian-looking lives while our hearts are invested elsewhere. 
May we keep check of the presence of oil, that, that evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and in our church. And may we live in the reality of the knowledge that he is returning. And let's not be found in the pursuit of anything other than him when he does. Let us keep watch. Let us be prepared, be alert, and check our lives that the lamps of our lives would be filled with oil and be preparing and lighting the way for him and his return. John Piper, when, he was, when he's talking about what it, what it looks like to watch for Christ's return, says, do you know what watch means? Watch means go to bed at 10 p.m. instead of 12. This is what it means, because if you don't, you'll be sluggish spiritually in the morning, and the devil will kneel you at 10 a.m. Watch means be alert, be vigilant. Do what you've got to do in your ordinary life to stay attuned with the living God and be in the word without falling asleep. He continues, how do you do your devotions without falling asleep? Turn the television off and get to bed. This is a text about living sober, ordinary, duty-performing lives so that when he comes, he will find you so doing. So as verse 13 reads, Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So we're to watch for his return. Secondly, as we look at the next parable, the parable of the talents, um, we'll see Jesus, who has just told us that we will know neither the day nor the hour, teaching us how we are to make that wait useful and productive. In outlining how we are to wait, Jesus is instructing his disciples that they have to be productive in the opportunities that he gives them. And this is probably one of Jesus' most famous parables, uh, but it's probably also one of the most misunderstood. And this comes from some confusion around the word talent. So our our English word talent, meaning a certain um, ability or aptitude for something, be it sports or music or any number of things, actually comes from this parable. But a talent in the original language in Greek didn't have anything to do with aptitude or ability like our word talent does. Quite simply, it was just a unit of measurement, a large unit of measurement. So a talent of money would have been a large amount of money. There's been some dispute among commentators as to to how large an amount of money that was, whether it was equivalent to a year's wages uh, or 20 years wages for the average worker, but either way, it was a considerable amount and the exact amount doesn't really make any difference to the meaning of the parable. Verse 15 seems to confirm the interpretation of this passage as being not primarily about our abilities and aptitudes um, because if it was, then it would read a little something like, to one he gave five abilities, to another two abilities, to another one ability, each according to his ability. Um, So this obviously wouldn't really make much sense. And instead I think that a talent, um, which as we see would have brought with it a large amount of responsibility for each of these servants. Um, I I, I think we can see it um, and understand it in in our context as any responsibility or opportunity that God gives us to labor in his kingdom. In this parable, Jesus is teaching us about how we handle the responsibilities we've been given in this lifetime. And ultimately, how we are to steward and use these abilities in doing the work that he has called us to do. Without wanting to confuse things too much, essentially, it is how we are to use our God-given abilities to complete the God-given talents or the God-given work that we are to do. 
Dick Lucas describes the talent as we understand it as an opportunity married to our capability. So essentially here, Jesus is adding a layer onto the previous parable. So in the previous parable, we saw that we're, we're, we're personally responsible for our watchfulness and our individual salvation. But here we see we're also personally responsible for our individual work in the kingdom that God has called us to do. So let's look briefly at how the parable unfolds. Once again, the parable begins with Jesus telling us that the kingdom of God is like. And this time, it's like a man who goes on a journey and calls his servants in verse 14 and entrusts them to his property. In verse 15, we see that he gives to one servant five talents, to another two talents, and to the third servant one talent. And we see that, that, that line, each according to his own ability. And once again, the exact amount of money doesn't really matter. Because even for the servant receiving one talent, this was still a large amount, likely at a, at a minimum one year's wages for the average worker. And with that came a certain responsibility. And in, in giving the servants these investments, the master is asking the servants to work with energy and with zeal to capitalize on the money that he had placed with them. And ultimately, the master returns and wants to see what has been done by each servant with his money. We see in verse 19 that he was coming back to settle his accounts. He wasn't just coming back to claim the money that he had given them in the first place. There was an expectation that the servants had done something with this. So one by one, he calls them up and each gives an account of how they have invested the money. The first two men both give account and present the work they have done. They faithfully set about the work that their master had given them, and they both produced a 100% return. The master commends them and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The third servant comes to give account, and straight away he's on the defensive. Verse 24 reads, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. This servant here, he's claiming to be afraid of his master. So he, he buried his treasure in the ground and now he says, here is your money, here's what's yours. I haven't made anything, but I haven't lost anything. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. And in verses 26 and 27, the master answers him. And I think we almost see him mocking the servant at this point. I don't think in any way the master is sort of agreeing uh, with the servant's assessment of him. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. I think there's a certain tone in this. The, the, the question mark in, in the next line, I think, suggests that, that he's almost saying, oh, so you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I've scattered no seeds? Well, if that's the case, then you must, you ought, you, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. The master is saying, even if this was true, you should have put the money in the bank anyway, and now I would be claiming the, the interest that I'm entitled to. So this, I don't really think, is, is, is a difficult story. I don't think it's uh, one of the par parables that requires much sort of cultural interpretation. But the message is pretty clear. There is work for us to do. And when our master returns, when Jesus returns, he will have an expectation of the work that we have spent our time waiting for him doing. If you're a true follower of Jesus, a servant of his, 
to use the imagery of this parable, we are to be busy at work, faithfully working and investing that which God has given us. We love Jesus and we're longing for his return and serving him with all we have, then we will joyfully and energetically set about to do the work of the kingdom as we wait for his return or until we are called home to be with him. And what we're talking about here, these these responsibilities or these obligations, these are the very things described as the drowsiness in the previous parable. How we work and how we approach these things and the very grind of life during this, this delay period in the king's return will be what shows those who have persevered and have had hearts genuinely transformed by the Holy Spirit. This isn't just referring to church work, but we are to work in the opportunities, responsibilities, and obligations that he gives us in all areas of life. He expects us to provide him with a return on these, and no aspect or area of our life is exempt from this. So enthusiastically and faithfully doing the work of the kingdom on earth in every aspect of our lives, out of love for and obedience to our Savior, will be what marks us as true followers of him. This is who the five wise bridesmaids proved to be. This is who the first two servants in this parable were. So the message, therefore, is, is clear and obvious, but there's just a couple of things that this parable tells us about the work we are called to do that I want to consider very briefly. So firstly, all work is God-given. Now, when I say this, I'm not just talking about our vocational jobs or things that we consider as work, but again, think instead of any responsibilities or obligations in our lives, be they our jobs, our relationships, our church work, anything that requires our time, our energy, our resources, and our abilities. And we see that all of this work is God-given in verse 14, when it is the master who issues the task. And like it or not, we also see that God does not always give equally. Each of the servants are given different talents of different value. But we also see that this is in accordance with their ability. And this too is the case with us. Normally, the work that we are called to, the tasks that we are given will correspond with our giftings and our abilities. Of course, there are times in life and throughout Scripture where this, this isn't the case. We think of First Samuel when um, little scrawny David, who is tasked with fighting Goliath, when there were plenty of other men who would have been better equipped to do so. But these cases tend to be the exceptions to the rule. And more often than not, we see God granting opportunity, responsibility, and talents to us in accordance with our gifting and our ability to fulfill them. This idea that some of us are given a little more work to do or more responsibility in the kingdom can, I think, naturally get our backs up a little. But throughout the parables and indeed all of Jesus' teachings, he is at pains to show that God doesn't conform to our ideas of fair. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the body of Christ being made up of many different parts with each playing its own unique role in the kingdom. And so we can expect to be called to responsibilities and to be presented with opportunities to do the work of our king that we are uniquely equipped to do. We we should receive all work with joy and give thanks for it and capitalize on it with all of our energy and all of our effort in the knowledge that it has been uniquely given to us and we have been uniquely equipped to do it. So all work is from God. All work is also for God. 
So because all work is from God, whatever we find ourselves doing, we are doing for our king. We are doing for the master. And this should be the thing that changes everything for us. The knowledge that it is our God and our king who we will be settling our accounts with. So in the the knowledge of this, we ought then to work with energy, with enthusiasm, with thankfulness, and with joy because our work has come from his hand. But I wonder, do we ever say thank you for the work that we have to do? Because being made to work and create and cultivate was one of the ways in which we've been made in God's image. And at the very core of the gospel is the fact that we deserve nothing, and yet in Christ we have been given everything. And so in his grace, we have received talents that we might work for his glory and for our joy until he returns. This is God giving us the opportunity to participate in the building of his kingdom and his work in reconciling all things to himself. Not only for his glory, but for our joy also. Greg Gilbert says, our work comes from him, is for him, and it is in him, not in our work, that we find our satisfaction. And so if we love our king and we know that we're accountable to him, we can only work with joy and thankfulness, even if we don't particularly like what the work is. The last thing that I think this this passage tells us about the work we're called to is that our call is to work faithfully. We saw that the talents weren't distributed equally, but neither is there an expectation of equal return Verses 21 and 23, both of the diligent servants, despite producing a a, a different monetary um, response to the master, they are commended exactly the same. You see, it wasn't about the return, it was about the work invested. And we are called to the same, we are called to be faithful. And yes, while of course our lives must also bear fruit, it is God who produces this. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 7, when he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The psalmist also testifies to this in Psalm 127 when he writes that unless the Lord builds the house, its laborers work in vain. The only problem here, however, is that I think all too often, we, we can take that as a bit of a let off. And I think let go and let God is a popular phrase that many Christians have used over time, which, which at best highlights the value of surrendering to God, admitting that God is God and we are not, so we lay down our efforts and our fears. But all too often, I think this, this phrase of let go and let God is used to sort of subtly put the brakes on our striving and our working for him. And the reality is, as Paul tells us very often, that that the Christian life is grueling. Second Timothy, Paul compares the Christian life to, to the toil of soldiers, athletes, and farmers and uses imagery of running tracks and boxing rings, not a walk in the park. We're called to work out what God has already worked in us. We labor not for our salvation, but we labor from our salvation. J.I. Packer put it that the Christian's motto should not be let go and let God, but rather trust God and get going. 
So we have seen Jesus instructing the church on how to wait for his return. We are to watch for his return and we are to work until he returns. And this is Jesus, Jesus instructing his disciples on how to be ready for his return. And yet we live in an age in which people are preoccupied with security, with insurance, with pensions, but so few give any thought to eternal security. Take the instruction of Amos 4.12 seriously and, and to prepare, prepare to meet our God is seen to be something that's reserved for religious fanatics and weirdos. And yet the warning is so stark as we read it here in these two parables of what awaits those who are not ready. We see the conclusion of both parables in verse 13 and verse 30 respectively. Five foolish virgins are told, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And the lazy servant hears the words and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see here once again that the ending of Jesus' parables never really fits with the rest of the story. Because what Jesus is doing is he's stepping out of the parable, he's stepping out of the, the imagery and, and the metaphor and stepping into reality. And the same goes here. We must be ready for the day when we too will give account of our work. See, what the lazy servant was lacking I think, was, was love, love for his master. He didn't love the master or want to serve him, and so he grew to fear the master. This, this failure to love meant that the servant didn't serve, and servants who don't serve aren't servants at all. We aren't ready for his return. If we aren't watching for him and working for him out of love for him, then we rightly should fear Christ's return. We as Christians must ask ourselves, are we ready? The king has left us for now, and in the meantime, he requires us to be vigilant and busy with unwavering loyalty in order to protect and build his kingdom. The true disciple is the one who lives as though Christ is still present. So we should ask ourselves, does our life on Monday to Saturday take into account the invisible God that no one else sees? And if it doesn't, we must recommit to the responsibilities that he calls us to and acknowledge that these have come from him and that he requires our absolute all. However, I urge you, brothers and sisters, don't, don't take this passage as, as merely instructions in self-improvement. Because as always, this can never be about what we do or how we earn through our actions and our efforts. We must simply look to Jesus. We must abide with him and in his presence and his word in all areas of our life because we love him. And as we do that, we treasure him all the more. We look forward to his return. And while we wait, we serve him with a joy born out of thankfulness for what he has done for us. And it's then, in that thankfulness, that we experience the reality of the promises of his word, which tell us we have nothing to fear when he returns. When we're abiding in him and in his word and in his presence, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are to take heart from his sure return because the Christ who is returning 
is the same Christ who has died for us and has already paid the ultimate price for our souls on that day. So think often to yourself, how do we want to be found when he returns? Pray that we may be found proclaiming the gospel to the lost, helping the poor or caring for the sick. Or that even as the five wise virgins were found, that we may be found asleep, tired after a day, watching for him and his return, toiling for the kingdom, and getting the rest required to do it all over again the next day. May we always be found watching for his return in his word and in his presence and going about his work because we love him. Amen.